Hello, everybody, and welcome to Truth Be Told. I'm very excited to be here with you today. Excited to record this episode and excited for you to listen to it um, because this is going to be our last episode of my trip through Israel. Now, that doesn't mean the series is going to be over because the trip itself isn't done. Uh, I still went to Jordan after this time in Israel, and there's a whole range of things to cover as far as the travel and getting into the country and what we saw there. So the series won't be done, but as far as our actual trip in the nation of Israel, uh, this episode should cover the final two days of that portion of the trip. So very excited to get this portion of the, the trip recorded, and hopefully it's been enjoyable for you up to this point. I did want to mention that I've been posting... Um, with each episode, there's a Google Drive link in the description of each episode. So if you look and you see a description, wherever you're listening, there should be a show more button or see more button, and it'll show you a description of the episode. But then down below that, if you keep scrolling, there should be like my email address, YouTube link, and um, a link to a Google Drive account or a Google Drive file that has pictures and a few videos in it. And they're labeled by day. So if you want, you can listen Uh, to each episode and click on the folder and view the pictures that I'm looking at as I'm telling all the stuff that's happening to us on our trip. Uh, You could look at it before or after, but I think it just gives a good visual. Um, Even though I'm trying to paint a picture as best as I can, I think pictures definitely are helpful. Uh, They don't tell a full story, but neither does just the audio of this. So I think it's a a good supplemental resource, but um, you know, whatever you, whatever you want to do. I know some people don't have time to, or they're you know, listening to podcasts as they're doing other things that they can't really stop and look at pictures. That's all good, but it is there if you'd like um, to view them at your leisure. So on this first day, it was it was a Friday. We're going to go through days 13 and 14. So on day 13, started out like any normal day, but we had uh, kind of less planned for the day. We were going to be seeing less sites, uh, really only two main sites, and then there was going to be a period of time in between those two where we could get lunch and there was going to be some shopping areas. And we really haven't had much of that up to this point. So, I mean, most places you go, like there's shopping done kind of interspersed throughout the whole trip, right? But for this, it's like we were go, go, go all the time. And not to say that nobody bought anything, but there was no time for like, okay, now there's time to just go and do what you'd like to do in this period. That we're always together, going somewhere, seeing something, very intentional with our time. So on this day, we had two sites to see, which was the Church of the Holy Sepulcher and the Garden Tomb, both proposed sites of Jesus's crucifixion and his burial, uh, which also would mean his resurrection. So very interesting sites. um, And we'll go through the merit of each of those and what I saw and what I think on it. Um, Everyone's got their own opinion. Um, But these were the two sites we were going to see, and then we did have that middle time in between for shopping that normally I wouldn't include in a podcast, like, what are you going to say about shopping? But there were some funny things that happened that I figured I'd share that kind of speak to the environment and, I don't know, are just kind of funny anecdotes that I figured might not be the worst to go through. So that's what we're going to do today. But like I said, it started as a normal day. We hopped on the bus, and it took us uh, to the old city of Jerusalem not to the Temple Mount area, so we didn't have to go through security or anything, but it dropped us off and we started walking down these these almost like outdoor hallways or corridors that were filled with market uh, market vendors. So 
it was an, it was kind of an open air market, not for food or anything, but just trinkets, um, souvenirs, things like that. And I was a little bit disappointed, admittedly, that for the most part, it seemed very touristy. Um, all the pictures, if you look at them, they look very authentic, very, um, Middle Eastern, Mediterranean, Israeli, like they, they just look the part. And yet if you looked in each of the stores, it's like, you can kind of tell most of the stuff in these areas were, um, you know, outsourced from China and purchased and brought in and they were just lining the shelves with them. So nothing that I really felt like compelled to buy, nothing that I felt, um, really was representative of my trip up to this point. So I was a little disappointed in that. Not that we had much time for shopping at this point. We were pretty much making a straight march through the marketplace to get to our first site, which was the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Um, but it was a, a pleasant walk. I'll say that. Nobody was pushy or trying to like force us to buy anything. They just kind of you know, stayed in their little market and watched us walk by. And if, I mean, some people would show interest in something. I'm sure they'd talk to people. Um, but for the most part, they just let us kind of view the, the things they were selling and enjoy the walk. So that was really nice. Cause some places I've been where they're, they have marketplaces. It's, um, at least for me, I find it very uncomfortable. It's like the kind of culture shock that is not at all enjoyable. Um, I know that I went to Tijuana, Mexico, I think twice when I was like either a young teen or a preteen and it was just awful. Like I really, really did not enjoy that at all. Um, now obviously a lot poorer people and they're like desperate to sell you things because that is how they literally survive and live. And so I understand their pushiness, but they're, I just, especially as a teen or a preteen, the feeling of like, they're going to steal things from me. was just awful. And you know, they'll grab your arm and just pull you straight into their booth or their store. So I hated that. I didn't know how to deal with it at the time. And that, kind of environment makes me uncomfortable, but fortunately this was not like that. It got a little bit more like that in a different part of the marketplace. Um, but as far as this first walk, just through the old city, um, to the church of the Holy Sepulcher, there was really nothing to report. It was just a pleasant walk and a lot to see lots of bright colors and different kinds of people. So it was an enjoyable walk overall. Now, we got to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and it is always, always, always absolutely packed. Fortunately, um, we were there fairly early, and there was still a ton of people there. Like it was, it was still pretty full, but not so full that we couldn't walk around and see what we wanted to. So I was grateful for that. I've heard of some people going and being unable to get through the doors themselves because it's just so full, even out in the courtyard area. So, like, it, it was just really nice to be able to go in. And even though there's a lot of people, it wasn't jam packed to the point where it was uncomfortable or impossible to get through. It was interesting to me, um, as we exited the marketplace and it kind of opened up just a little bit to this little courtyard area. And you're looking at the entrance to this church because the buildings here are so tightly packed together. Um, it's just very, very, um, high value real estate at this spot. Um, and so all the buildings are really tightly packed together and you're looking at the church and it, it doesn't really look that impressive considering this is the proposed site of one of the most important events, if not the most important event in all of Christian history. Um, the front of this building just didn't look that impressive. Now, if you look at pictures online, um, it definitely has much more of a 
an intentional structure to it and you can see the beauty of the architecture and everything but from where we were standing it just kind of looked like a big doorway and there were like two arches that you could see um, the doorway was on the left and there were two windows above but it just I would have walked right past it and not known what it was had we not been led to it um, there's not like a sign out front either so that was kind of interesting because most churches I'm used to um, especially old cathedrals, like the outside is the thing that makes it known. Like you, you can tell which cathedral something is based on the outside architecture. It's like an artwork and it's not to say it wasn't beautiful at all. It, it definitely was. There was intentionality behind the building, but it just, it wasn't like a standalone building. And so, because it's just so packed by other buildings around it, that it was kind of impossible to know like, well, what does this building as a whole look like unless you look at pictures online. So we stood outside um, in the courtyard area and we just talked for a while and waited on certain people to come out, um, filtering out so we could kind of filter in. And our guide just talked to us for a while. Primarily, he talked to us about the joint ownership of this spot, which is so interesting because, because it's such an important spot. Um, everyone wants to claim it. And so there's kind of been a deal worked out amongst um, like Catholics, Orthodox Christians, and Armenians who all lay claim to this spot as like very, very important uh, historically for their faith, but they don't really know how to work all that out necessarily. So they have uh, rules and guidelines and everything, but they still run into problems. So for example, uh, the one that our guide showed us that I thought that was the most interesting. Like you'll look at the top right window. Like I said, there's two archways on the left of the archways is a door. And then above that, there's two windowed archways and the right hand archway has a ladder underneath the window. It's just like a three or four step ladder. And apparently someone got up there to clean it, like clean one of the windows and they left the ladder. And so there was this big discussion on like, well, okay, whose who's ladder is this? Because it's on like Catholic territory, but it was used by the Armenians to do the cleaning. And like the windowsill itself might be Catholic, but then um, if the Armenian brought it up there and then left it for how long does it, you know, who does it change ownership after a certain amount of time? And so this ladder is just still there because any little thing that happens on this compound is like documented and it's like the, the, you don't cross lines. If you're an Armenian, you do the Armenian job. If you're a Catholic, you do the Catholic job. If you're Orthodox, you do the Orthodox job. And so this ladder just got left there and they can't decide who has ownership of this ladder because technically it's on the Catholic responsible portion of the church and yet it's claimed that it was used by an Armenian to do a cleaning of something that was in their jurisdiction. And the same thing happens with like, um, like the outdoor area and the indoor area. So, um, this is especially prominent in like the front door. It's like, okay, well, if the Armenians are responsible for keeping the outdoor area clean, does this mean that the doors themselves belong to the Armenians or the front step? Do they, if they want to wash something off or do a repair, do they have to seek the Catholics' approval because it's technically outside? And so there's all this intermixing of responsibility. And um, I won't say confusion because they seem to have it figured out relatively well. Like, it's not like there's a ton of fighting or anything going on. It's just little things like this ladder that has just been there for years and years and years. 
and won't be moved in the near future because they can't agree on whose ladder it is and who's responsible for it. And this kind of gets into the idea that um, this idea of like holy space, and it's something I'm not super comfortable with. It's against my tradition, but it's also, I think, not really prescribed in the Bible. But I think Catholics and Orthodox especially really get into this like, well, something amazing happened here. And so we need to almost worship the space itself. And they'll say things like, no, we revere it or we venerate it or whatever. Um, and I think that's kind of masking what you're doing because idolization is is in your heart. It's not always just an action thing, but they see it as like, well, idolizing something would be this action, but I'm venerating it, which is this action. But really, I think in their hearts and minds, they're almost idolizing the space and they've got every square inch accounted for. Now, that being said, I don't want to minimize the fact that it is incredible that in some way, heaven and earth kind of came together in all the places that Jesus was. I mean, fully man and fully God. That's my belief about Jesus Christ. And where he stood and where he was, that is an incredible thing. The places where God worked incredible miracles, I think are worth seeing and worth being impressed about. And, you know, they they have a sense of gravity about them. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But you'll see as we go into this building that it's not just the organized churches themselves that have this idea of every little square inch must be accounted for and every square inch is holy and only we can be the custodians of something so holy. Even the parishioners, the people coming into the church themselves or the people making pilgrimage to this place, they see this as like every square inch of this place is very, very holy. And I I can't get behind that. Now, like I said, if this is the site, then I'm very interested in it and I want to be respectful of it. And I do think that um, I'm in sort of a state of awe of the fact that God did an amazing thing here. And I think all that's fine, but I just, I definitely felt very short of all the people that were here visiting. And uh, you see this as you first walk into the building. So you walk in and right in front of you, as you walk through this left arch into the main door, there's this stone on the ground and it's probably about seven feet by maybe two feet. Um, And it's down on the ground. So you have to kneel to touch it. Um, It's maybe like sticking two inches or so out of the ground. You know me, I touched every rock I could. So I definitely touched this one too. The belief here is that this stone is where Jesus's body was laid after it was taken off of the cross. So all those images, think of like the Pieta, um, all those images of, of Mary holding Jesus and uh, John or some of the, the watchers of the crucifixion gathered around. Um, this is where that would have taken place in the mind of the people that run this church. Now, is it true? I have absolutely no idea. There's nothing historically that can indicate that this stone specifically was exactly the place where this happened. It's just, that's the tradition of it. I'm not even sure how far back that tradition goes, but it kind of reminds me of like the Via de la Rosa. And I'm not going to say that there's no truth to that at all. I think there are definitely places like, I mean, one of the places is here where Jesus was crucified. So uh, I think that There is a spot in this world where Jesus was, in fact, crucified. There is a spot where he was uh, interrogated and beaten and made to carry his cross. And that's all true. And I think the Bible outlines that. The fact that there's these stations and it was all intentional that there'd be a station here, a station there. There's like a man gave him water here. It's like we have no 
No biblical indication of that, but that's become the tradition, especially the Catholic tradition over time. And so you kind of have to filter it and be like, okay, what's the thing that we can verify from this account? And what's the thing that we can't? And this stone here, um, it's like, I know verifiably that Jesus's body was removed from the cross and it was prepared before being placed in the tomb. I know that for a fact. It happened somewhere. Did it happen on this rock? I have absolutely no clue. And the people that were with me that are going to hear me saying this might laugh because here I was all throughout Israel being like, well, I want to know if this is the one. I, you know, I want to know the, the actual, the verifiable, the truth. And sometimes they're just like, well, we don't, we just don't know. And that seemed to be okay for them. And it really bothered me until I saw it for myself. And then I came back. I was like, oh, okay, it's fine. Like, I believe it either happened, like if it happened here, then it happened around here. Now, I don't need to sit here and like worship this stone like I see other people kind of doing here. But I can be interested in the fact that if it wasn't this stone, it was some a stone around this place. And so that was enough for me. And I found it interesting, my shift in mindset here. Um, but there's all these people here kneeling around the stone. And some are just weeping and praying and kissing the stone and wiping scarves on it and putting them in their pockets, hoping that something miraculous has rubbed off on it and they've put it in their pocket uh, to take home with them and they'll give it to a friend or place it over a sick person. And they've got, it's almost like a, it's very superstitious in my mind, um, but I cannot judge their, their zeal for it. I mean, really they are here and they are internalizing the story of what they believe happened here and their emotion um, regarding the crucifixion of who they believe is their savior I find impressive. I, I think it's misplaced. Obviously, I think you know they're they're putting it they're putting their their love for something towards a rock rather than the God who is alive. But at the same time, they're doing something very admirable that I often, as a Western, more skeptically minded Christian, um, less mystically mindset in anyways. Like I look at it and I think, uh. I don't get it. I don't know. It's a little uncomfortable to me. And there were a lot of people that expressed that from our group, just walking through and seeing these people on this rock. And they're like, wow, it's like they're in a trance or a daze or something. Like they're just, you know, freaking out about a rock. And it's like, we don't even know historically that it is the rock. And in that, I noticed my own Western empirical mindset rather. And, you know, I don't think that's always the best thing. Now, like I said, I don't think we need to be at the rock here just weeping and gushing over it or anything, but I do wonder at the fact that this story often doesn't bring me to tears or it often isn't gut-wrenching, maybe once a year when we go over it around the Passover time, but you know, I don't think about this all the time. I don't think I could just bring myself to tears on any random middle of the week day thinking about the death of Jesus Christ, and yet these people are. They've internalized it to a point. They have recognized their sin and their need for a savior to a point that it does bring them great emotion to consider. And so I respect that even if I don't respect the action uh, itself. And I think that's uh, something worth remembering when we're dealing with people that are maybe not of our, not of our culture. You know, it's just like this is, they're in a different culture. They're in a different even religion than I am in a way. I mean, they're either Catholic or Orthodox or something. But the story has been internalized in them. And I think that maybe we could stand with a little bit less uh, 
um, empiricism and a little bit more emotion, like genuine emotion, not just working yourself up into some sort of state, but genuine emotion at the things that God meant to be emotional. And I think sometimes our empiricism can kind of get in the way of that. So um, yeah, that was just an interesting thing to see. I did touch the rock. I did sit there and try and meditate on the sacrifice of Christ for a time, but I don't know that that was the exact rock. Now, as we walked further into the church, um, the main thing that people are here to see is the empty tomb. So there's a tomb here on site in this church and people are lined up to see it. Now, a few of us from our group got in the first line we saw and we thought, okay, we're going to go and be in line to see the tomb. We waited there for a while until we realized, like we walked all the way around this little, there was like a central, um, it kind of reminded me of the, the, uh, the cave of the birthplace of Jesus in uh, Bethlehem because it's just like this square marble, almost like a building inside of the building um, with an entrance. And it's all, it's very like decked out in all kinds of decorations and gold hangings and incense dispensers and all this stuff. And I figured, okay, that must be the tomb uh, because I know the tomb was like a cave. And I know that in Bethlehem, they had this, this, same uh, kind of structure, the same style of structure anyways. And so that must be the tomb. And so we're in line thinking we're going into the tomb, but we round the corner. We're in like this rotunda area inside the church um, with this square building box place in the middle of it. And I'm like, okay, so this looks like a central area. We're going to round the corner in this line and we'll be entering into what they believe to be uh, the tomb. And as we round the corner, we realize that we're actually in line for confessional. And there's a priest. This is like the building or the structure where the tomb is, but it's on the other side that you actually enter in. And there's a separate line to it. So people will go into the church, enter this line, go through confessional, and then enter the other line to get into the tomb itself. It's like they want to be purified or forgiven of their sins or whatever before they um, approach this holy place. Now, again, in my head, this is not a holy place. This is a place where an incredible and holy thing happened, but that's there's a, there's a distinction there I think that's important. So realizing that it was a confessional booth and not the place that I actually wanted to be, we got out of line pretty quickly and tried to get into the line for the tomb. Unfortunately, this line was forever long and it moves very slowly because once you're inside, there's no like... I mean, it's a cave, you know, once you get in, there's not like an exit, a convenient exit out of it. You're in and then you've got to crawl your way back out. So people go in there and there's no like um, mediation as far, there's no one standing there being like, all right, you got 30 seconds. You know, it's like people go in and they take their time. And if I thought it was like kind of wild what people were doing at the stone slab where his body might've been prepared, what they're doing inside the tomb, I can't even imagine. I mean, um, you know, there's a lot of weeping going on at just the entrance to this place, let alone what must be going on inside the tomb itself. And so each person goes in and they might be in there for 10 minutes. You know, you just have no idea. I'm sure there's someone that's ushering people out every once in a while, but this line moves very slowly. Um, it's very quiet. People are very, uh, reverent of this area. 
And so after a while, I was like, okay, you know, I'm not even 100% sure this is the exact tomb. I'm pretty close to it. I got exactly on the other side of the wall from it at this confessional booth. Um, I kind of got yelled at by the priest there too because I was talking to someone asking, like, is this the right place? And he's like, shh, we shouldn't be, no, shh. And he just kind of waved me away. And he didn't seem very uh, invested in trying to help me. So yeah, that wasn't very enjoyable. But I got pretty close to it. And I stood in line for a minute, but I realized like this just probably isn't going to happen. So I took a picture of the structure itself and in through the doors of it. So you can kind of see in like how people walk through. Um, But other than that, I did not go into the tomb itself. So that was a little bit of a regret, but I just, I simply don't think we had time. Like this line can take three hours sometimes and we just didn't have that. So from there... Um, I went upstairs. Now we had free reign in this church and there were a lot more, it seemed like most churches we went to had like a few main areas. Um, there was like the historically significant part of the part of the church. And then there was like the place where people would meet for services. You know, these were kind of the two main areas and they were kind of wide open. This church had a lot more like little hallways and alcoves and places to explore and you can go upstairs and downstairs and into this room and that room. So you're kind of on your own to try and just figure out where things are, trying to keep your talking to a minimum so you're not yelled at by priests, but also trying to figure out exactly where you're supposed to go. So we walked around and uh, I was just kind of on my own. I went upstairs and upstairs is where they believe that Jesus was actually crucified. So it would be like, you know, walking up the hill of Calvary. And so you walk up these stairs and you can see where um, they have some stone there that's exposed. Um, some of it has like cracks in it. And I think, I think there, again, there weren't signs everywhere, just outlining everything historically, but I think they say that might've been, Um, a result of like the earthquake that happened at the time of Jesus's death. So that's possible. You can't actually touch the stone. It's covered in glass, but you get up there and you can see like they have three golden crosses and there's one where they believe that Jesus was. And um, that center one, you can actually go under, it's like there's a table in front of it, almost like an altar. And that center one, you can go underneath the table, like literally on your hands and knees and touch like a gold plated thing that rests over where they think his cross was laid. Now, I didn't do that because I'm not, I wanted to touch the rocks, you know, and we, we couldn't touch the rocks. So I didn't want to go touch this gold plated thing that just was next to a thing that I thought was cool. Um, so I didn't go under the table, but I did think about it. But a lot of people did. Um, so we saw that. And then from that area, you kind of filter out. And you're, then you're overlooking um, the rotunda that we were just in. There's a big hole in the ceiling with the sun shining through. It really is, at least from my perspective, I think it's a gorgeous church on the inside. Um, on the outside, again, it wasn't much to look at. But on the inside, I really thought like um, it was almost too much decoration maybe in my mind. But it was austere for sure. And I know that some people went out and thought that was kind of a weird I didn't like the vibe there, but I still thought it was beautiful. So from there, uh, I was told of this place just down the hall. And, you know, I feel like you could probably spend a lot of time in that church. If you had a guide go through with you, um, there's probably a lot to see. And I would have been fascinated to do that. But I was told there's a place called Nicodemus's Tower or the Tower of Nicodemus. 
And so I went over there and I thought, I, I just don't know what this is. But you go in and as you walk into this little round room, which I guess is the base of the tower from the outside, you go in this room and there is another tomb. This one has no line at all. So uh, maybe like one or two people. But it's supposed to be um, very similar looking to the one that is the one they believe that Jesus was in. And so I figured, okay, well, I didn't go into that one. I'll go into this one. And it turns out this tomb is actually believed to be the site of Nicodemus's tomb. You remember in, in the gospel, gospel account, um, Jesus talks to Nicodemus, and that's when you get the whole, um, unless one is born again, then he cannot enter the kingdom, and Nicodemus has questions. But it's believed that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were members of the Sanhedrin, Pharisees even, but became supporters of Jesus and ended up being followers of him and, and possibly even leaders in the church uh, later on in Jerusalem. So this was kind of cool. Uh, if this is the site of Nicodemus, I read a while ago, there's an apocryphal work called the gospel of Nicodemus. And it wasn't my favorite apocryphal work by any means. I don't think it's genuine. I don't think Nicodemus actually wrote it. Um, I think it's like second century or so, but it was interesting. And kind of made me appreciate the historical figure of Nicodemus, or at least who they believed him to be. And um, they just, I think the, the early church appreciated the testimony of Nicodemus because he was this high up Jewish official. And for him to be supportive of the ministry of Jesus Christ was was very significant. So to be at this tomb was pretty cool. And you, you go in and um, there's not a lot of room in here. I could, I think you could probably fit like two or three people in, but there, it was really, really cramped. So I just went in by myself and there's like a, a metal grate in the floor. I'm not sure for what there were candles stuck in it. Um, so maybe that's all it's for. And I was trying to be careful not to like light myself on fire either. Cause you know, I didn't exactly want that to happen this early in the day, but there's, it's just a cave. There's like very literal rock walls and, um, these candles on the ground and then two, hollow recesses in the wall that, um, there may be a foot and a half high and pretty deep. Like you can't, I wouldn't ever go into them. My guess is that the body would have been laid inside the main area of this cave until it decomposed. And then it would have been placed in a bone box or an ossuary and then put inside these two recesses. So there's a picture there. Um, you can see it um, you can see both of one me on the outside of it and one of me on the inside of it. So I'll post both of those in the description, uh, in the, that Google drive link. So you'll have those there. Now, before I left, there was one other thing that people were saying that they believe to be here and I wanted to go see it. So I was just about to walk out of the building and my dad stopped me and he said, Oh, did you go in this room over here? And I hadn't. So I went in. It was really strange because as I walked in, there was no one else in there aside from two, I don't even know if they were priests or not, but they were wearing all black and they had hats on, very official looking, regal, religious people. And so they were the only people in this room and you had to step up into it and it just felt like this was a place that I wasn't supposed to be. Nobody else was there that was like a tourist or a parishioner or anything and so I was like, I feel like I'm going to go in here and be immediately yelled at. And they were like walking around really quickly, you know, and talking to each other in hushed tones. So I was like, okay, well, 
I guess I'm going to just be ready to get yelled at again by another priest. So I stepped up into the room. They didn't say a word to me. They were kind of annoyed that I was in their way, but they didn't tell me to leave. Um, And you walk through this room. There's nothing in it besides like a lamp on the ceiling. But across the room on the far side, there's a glass window set in the stone wall. And it's lit up from the inside. Now, you can't get up close to the window itself because there is a little tiny gated doorway. Um, There's like a gate that's probably about waist high and then a a wooden doorway to get through to it. And with those guys standing around, I didn't want to chance it. Um, And even after, after you would get past the doorway, I don't think there's any great way to get over to the window itself. But apparently what this is, is in this little windowed area, as close as you can get to it, you just look, it looks like there's a stone wall with a window in it and through that window is just rocks. But what they believe this is, is the the tomb of Adam and Eve. So if I already can't historically verify that this was the exact spot that Jesus was crucified and that was in the first century, I'm not exactly sure how we can historically verify that Adam and Eve is buried at this spot, but who knows? I mean, weirder things have happened. So I took a picture of it anyways, and there's oddly a, uh, a picture to the left, top left-hand corner of Jesus on the cross. I'm not really sure why that's there either. I'd have to look it up. Um, but it was interesting nonetheless. I mean, they clearly believe that that's what they've got here. So why not take a picture of it? All in all, as you leave this this church, you're kind of just struck with the, the idea that this is a very old church with very old, long-standing traditions, that this is the correct place in the minds of the organizers of this church and the people that are visiting on pilgrimages or that just go here for church. Um, people believe very strongly that this is the correct place and they have all the correct artifacts. And so you walk out and... As doubtful as I was going in, I walked out with a sense of at least respect for the people that do believe that they have the right place here. They have reason to believe that it's the right place, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. I want to go through the second site first, then we'll talk about which one I believe to be the right one, if either of them are the right one. So they have reason to believe it, and their zeal for for that belief is impressive. So I, I do appreciate all of that, and you walk out not at all wanting to mock their belief. Um, I know some people, it's like, it's very natural, I think, for people to look at the belief of another person that might contradict their own thoughts on something. And it's very natural to want to mock that belief or mock that person to try and delegitimize their view. And we do this, even if we're not like rude people, you know, there's some like really good people that will feel this way naturally. You know, it's like, you believe something like that, man, that just like you lose a tiny bit of respect for the person because they believe that. Interestingly, though, here, even though I walked in with like a good, healthy dose of skepticism, which I did for pretty much every site that it's believed that, you know, um, the story goes that Constantine's mother, Helena, as the nation of Rome was being converted to Christianity, she went on a tour of Israel herself to try and stake out spots uh, for new churches. And she relied on some testimony of the local people, but it's believed that some of them might have lied to her because they didn't want the actual spot to be desecrated by a giant cathedral. Or possibly um, 
some say that she had visions or she wrote that she had visions that told her where the specific sites were. And so when she got to this site, she said she had a, a vision about it. And there also was a tradition that went with it. And so that's interesting as well. And then she walked in and there, it was originally um, a pagan church actually on this spot, but she walked in and in like the basement area or the attic area, I forget which, she found remnants of what she said were a cross. And so they have pieces of that as well. Um, not on display here. They've, they've t- since taken those, but that's kind of the idea here. But I didn't walk away from this site feeling at all disrespectful towards the people that believe that this is the correct spot. I think they do have good reason for it. But like I said, we'll talk about that in a little bit. So after we left uh, the church, of the Holy Sepulcher, we then made our way towards the Muslim quarter um, of Jerusalem And this is where we were going to be kind of breaking away from each other. We were going to have lunch wherever we wanted, and we could do some shopping. So we entered into the middle of the Muslim quarter at this point, and we kind of stopped at this Fountain Square area where there was restaurants and there were places to shop. There were market vendors and everything. So we stopped there and got food, um, and then we just started doing some shopping. So we were looking for things like just things to bring home to people, things that were representative of our trip. I did find a really cool store that um, was selling like antiquity kind of things. And so I went in there and ended up getting an arrowhead from from like a first century Roman centurion. And so that was pretty cool. I still have that. It's on my shelf. Um, Came with like a certificate of authenticity. And I tried to get some of the guides to look at it to see, you know, there's some places that try and like sell you things that aren't genuine. They're just reproductions or things that they've made. And it's just, it's really hard to tell. So I got one guide's opinion on it and he said it looked good to him. So I felt pretty good about it and I'll never know the difference either way at this point. Um, but I, I bartered a little bit with the guy. Um, apparently someone came in and they were helping me barter with the guy And they said, if it's their first sale of the day, they have this belief that they want to make you a good deal because if they make a good deal and they're generous with their first sale, then you'll go out and tell everybody and then they'll have a successful business day. And so he brought that up and that dropped the price quite a bit as well. So that was nice. I appreciated that. And then someone else came in and was helping me too. They said, well, does he get a display case for it? Like a little stand that he had had it on on the shelf. And he said, no, 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 no. I don't give these away. And this person was like, well, why not? Like, how, how's he going to display it? That doesn't seem fair. And then the guy said, okay, because you're being so kind, because you're helping your friend, I'll do this. So I actually got a lot of help. I'm, I'm pushy up to a point. And then beyond that, I'm like, it just, this is what it costs, you know? And like, I'm either going to accept that or not. But these guys were much more familiar, I guess, with the culture and much less hesitant to barter a little bit. So they helped me out quite a bit. I appreciated that. From that point though, I didn't really see a lot of things that I wanted. Um, We were looking for just really anything that people from home might want that isn't too heavy to put in your suitcase. Um, And, you know, I don't think we found anything really that day, but it was still cool to go into some shops. There were some that were family owned for a long time and they had some cool uh, old artifacts or historical pieces that I thought were just interesting to look at at least. Um, but then after a while I was like, okay, I think I'm done shopping. So we went back to the central area where this fountain was in the middle of the square and it wasn't on or anything, but it was kind of a blue, um, stone structure that I guess is normally a fountain. There was just kind of trash inside of it, unfortunately. 
Um, so it didn't look that appealing, but there were steps leading up to the fountain itself. And so I sat on these steps for a while and we just waited on the rest of our group to gather up after lunch and doing the shopping that they wanted. So at this point, I'm, I'm done shopping. I'm done, you know, looking at things and I don't really want to spend any money on anything here. I've seen what there is to see, but there's these people wandering around. And so there's some of our group sitting on the fountain and just standing around waiting. And there's these people that are wandering around. And this is where like the pushy kind of marketers started to come out. And they would go up to people and like put hats on them. And it was like, or, or like turbans or just different things. And I was like, man, I don't even know culturally what that means. You know, it's like, that doesn't look like something that I want to be walking around Israel wearing. Now it might be fine. It might just be religious or cultural or whatever. But there were some of them that I was like, I feel like I've seen that on the news somewhere and I just don't want any part in it. But some people from the group thought it was funny and um, they were entertaining the vendors. And so these vendors would come up and they'd just start putting stuff on you like a like a hat and they'd wrap like rope around your head to like secure the turban thing onto you. And they'd put bracelets on your arm and it's like, I just, I wasn't having any of it. So at this point I was like more than comfortable just saying no. And I did several times. Um, but this one guy just kept circling around and around and around and he was selling bracelets and he said they're, they're three for $1 and they weren't like super nice. They weren't anything that I wanted. Um, I don't think it, said made in China on it, but it's that kind of thing. Um, they look like vaguely Middle Eastern. And so he's trying to sell these things and he's putting them on people's arms and he's like, people are like, no, absolutely not. Just go away. And so he comes up to me and he goes, what about for your mom or your sister or girlfriend? Or, I mean, there's gotta be someone you want to give a bracelet to from Jerusalem. And I said, if I buy one, will you leave this whole group alone? You know, I'm thinking it's a dollar, like he's doing his job. He's being funny. He was being pushy, but not in like a rude or obnoxious way. And he said, yes. So I gave him a dollar. He gave me three bracelets. I put them in my backpack and he walked away. Two minutes later, he's back again doing the same thing. So he did not honor his part of the deal. Um, but when that happened, this other little kid came up and he's probably like maybe 10 and he walks up to the guy and he shoes him away. He said, hey, you made a deal with him. Go away now. And so he, I, I appreciated that because it's like he saw the whole thing happen, noticed this guy was not following up on his end of the bargain, and he was the one saying like, no, absolutely not. Get out of here. And so the guy left, and that was really nice. But then the kid stuck around for a while, and I'm thinking, okay, what does he want? Because, you know, it's not just grown people selling things. It was kids in shops and their whole families and everything. And so I'm thinking, what does he want? But he just stood there for a long time. Like he didn't try and sell anything. He didn't have anything on his person to sell in the first place. And so I just started talking with him. And his name was Ryan, and which I thought was interesting for a Muslim guy in Jerusalem, like to name his kid Ryan. I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting name. Um, and his brother's name was Abu. And I thought that was an interesting name. It's like, what, what a contrast here you have in names. But I sat and talked to them for a little while, um, just about like how they like living in Jerusalem and in Israel and, um, what they do for school and what sports they like. And they taught me a little bit of, um, Arabic. All, all I remember is Shokran, which is uh, thank you. 
but it still was interesting. Uh, they taught me a few words, and they were they seemed pretty impressed that. I mean, they were just being flattering, but they seemed um, genuinely approving of my pronunciation after a few tries. So that was fun. But the the thing is, whenever I talk to especially kids, um, and foreign kids is especially difficult. I always wonder, like, do they actually like me, or are they just being polite? Or are they like secretly laughing at me behind my back and like I'm a big joke to them? And I couldn't tell. Um, but they did. They stayed for a while and they even like brought out a soccer ball and were kicking it around. And um, it seemed, and they were there for like 35 minutes probably just talking. And I was really enjoying it because I was just, it was cool to like have this intercultural experience and like learn about their lives. And um, I just thought they were nice kids. And so I gave each of them. Um, a bracelet that the other vendor had given me. And I said, here, you can either resell this if you want, or you can give it to your mom or your girlfriend at school. And they thought that was hilarious. And then they ran off and I was like, they said, okay, we have to go. We should probably get back to work. And I said, okay, well, have a good day. And um, that was really it. And I was telling people around me, like in the group, I said, you know, I just can't tell if like that was a genuinely good, positive experience for both of us, or if they're just making fun of me. And I'm like a foreign tourist joke to them. And the people around me were like, no, that seemed like they really enjoyed that conversation. That was like really nice. And it was cool to see that interaction. I was like, okay, good. I'm going to walk away from this feeling overall positive about it. Now about a minute passed by and Ryan comes running up again and he says, Hey, I told my dad about you. He said, come to, come to our store down the street and he'll give you a gift for free. And I said, yeah, I've heard this free thing before. Like they'll all tell you like something for free, something for free. And then they'll say, well, now you have to give me a gift back. Just anything, anything is a gift. And they want it to be an appropriate price for whatever they just gave you. So it's not free. It's not a gift. You're paying for something, but they're just using certain language to make it sound that way. So I was like, I've heard of this free thing. I don't want anything for free. I'm good. Have a great day. He said, no, come. It's just, it's not very far. It's just down the street. You can see it from here. And he points down the street a little bit. And I'm like, okay, this kid's not going to leave me alone. He's been nice and honest up to this point. Overall, a positive interaction. He said, no, my dad just wants to thank you. And so I went up, uh, I went down the street and into the shop and the dad's sitting there like a sultan, just on this like giant pillow on a chair. Like there's a little chair low to the ground. He's got a giant pillow on it. He's just like sitting almost kind of cross-legged on it. He said, Oh, you're the man who's been very kind to my boys. Thank you so much. He said, there's a lot of horrible people out here. Very rude, very rude and mean to my boys. So thank you. I just really appreciate it. I said, well, no problem. They're good kids. Um, I enjoyed talking with them. And I I said, how long have you been in the store? We talked for a minute. I said, all right, well, I got to go get back to my group. And he said, wait, wait, I want to give you a gift. And I said, no, that's what he said. I don't need anything from you. It's fine. I just enjoyed talking. He said, no, please. It would be rude of me not to give you a gift. And I said, well, no, I don't have, I'm not spending money right now. Like I have no money to spend on things. And he said, that's fine. It's fine. It's a gift. And I said, you know, I just, I don't really want anything. It's fine. Like I've already looked around. There's nothing here I really want. And he said, well, how about a scarf? And he looked in the back of his shop and he said, here's a beautiful one. And he pulls one out. He said, do you want this? And I said, no, I, honestly, I don't want anything, please. And he starts wrapping it up and he puts it in the bag and he says, here, it's beautiful. This is for you. And I said, 
man, like, honestly, I'm starting to think maybe it is free. I don't know. Like, maybe he just appreciated me being nice to his kids. He hands me the bag and he says, now, um, you should give some gift back. It's, it's custom. I'm like, oh man, here we go. I said, no, it's okay. I don't want to take anything from you. I said, your son said it was free. And he said, oh, he shouldn't have said free. He should say gift. He's learning. I said, yeah, okay. Learning to swindle was what I wanted to say, but I understand they're just, they're doing their jobs and they obviously have some modicum of success at it. So he hands me the bag and he said, just give a gift back. And I said, no, I don't like, I don't have money to spend on this. No, thank you. So I handed it back and I start walking up the street. He says, wait, 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 what do you have? And I said, what do you mean? I said, I got $5. How about that? Like at this point, I'm going to be late. My group's like gathering together to start leaving. And he's, I said, $5. He said, oh, okay. And he pulls off like this low, this like scarf low down on the shelf, like clearly a misprint. It's got like the ink stains on it are like not even. It's not very precise. He said, here, you can have this. Rolls it into a big ball, throws it in a different bag and hands me that one. Takes my $5. I'm like, man, overall, I'm still going to count it as a positive experience, but I definitely got swindled. And it's just, I don't know. It was just something funny to me. I still have... Uh, I gave the scarf to my sister, but I have the bracelet. And so hopefully they at least appreciated that, or maybe they just resold it or they, I don't know, gave it to their mom or something. But I have the bracelet on my shelf to remember that interaction by, for one, just because it's cool to, I think it's cool to have interactions with people that like truly live there. You know, it's, it's not just like, like, yes, I'm in a touristy area, but these guys are like genuine, uh, living in Israel Jerusalem born and raised, you know, I just thought it was a good interaction, even though I got absolutely cheated out of five bucks. And I got back to my group and everybody laughed at me because uh, I caved. So that's the story I wanted to share about that. From here, I'm going to move on from making fun of myself. From here, we moved on to the garden tomb and we just walked through the streets. Uh, Everything's pretty compact here. Not any room for cars by any means. So we walked through the streets to the garden tomb Um, and I was really excited about this because going in, this was the place that I was convinced was the, the spot of Christ's crucifixion, um, and burial and resurrection. So I was pretty convinced this was the spot and I was hoping that I would be proven right. So bear in mind, I had a bias going in. So we walk in and initially we're just walking through kind of a garden area. Um, it was beautiful um, lots of, and it wasn't like a, like a wild garden by any means It's clearly very well cultivated and propagated. Um, and then, so we're just walking through these plants to this area where there's like, um, theater seating and probably just like 10 rows or so of theater seating. And so we're sitting there and this woman comes out and she is our guide for this place. And so she starts giving us this like presentation and I, I really didn't enjoy it because it was clearly rehearsed. Like it wasn't a person talking about something they know a lot about. It was someone rehearsing a script and then delivering it to you. And she had pictures and everything. And I guess the whole thing that this kind of stems on that this would be the place is the fact that it is currently outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And it's on this hilltop area that they believe looks like a skull. 
So in the in the gospel accounts, it says they took him to the place of the skull called Golgotha. Now you're looking at it, and and even this guide, she's like pointing up. She said, "And what does that look like over there?" And everyone's like, "I have no like. It literally does not look like a skull." And she goes, "Okay, well maybe you can't see the skull now, but look at this picture." And she shows us a picture, and I'm like. Yeah, that still does not look like a skull to me. And she's like, but bear in mind, there would have been erosion and it would have looked totally different at the time of Jesus. And I'm like, well, then how can we know it would have looked like a skull? Like there are like two recesses in the rock kind of, um, but it's really a stretch in my mind to call this looking like a skull. Um, so we're there and we we saw the skull uh, or what she said was a skull. Then we walked down a little bit to get to the tomb area and it's there's like a rock wall with just a hole in the wall, probably about three and a half feet tall or so. And they were like pretty adamant about not taking pictures in front of it to keep the line moving. Fortunately, I got one on my way out. I appreciate my dad taking that picture. Um, but I went inside and it is cool in there. Like it's definitely a tomb. And you can definitely see like how it's laid out and it gives you the idea of a tomb. There's even like a track at the bottom um, on the outside where they say the stone would have been to be rolled in front of the door. Now, it looks good. There's even a like a crusader cross that's been painted onto the wall showing that even back in that time, they believed this was a special or holy spot that was visited. Um, doesn't exactly prove that it was Jesus's burial site, but that's that's kind of like one of their proofs. And so it does date back a ways. Um, I'll say that. And it definitely was important to the Christian religion, at least in like the 400s, 500s AD. So that's something. Um, but does that mean that this was the spot? Now, this is where I want to get into what do I think about which place is accurate. Now, um, there's pros and cons of each. The garden tomb really, it gives you a sense of that like serenity you would want from a garden. Um, it is outside the current city walls of Jerusalem. It does have that uh, tradition going back a ways. It does have the potential for that stony place to look like a skull. Um, other than that, I don't see a lot of possibility that this is the place because even in the dating of the tomb, it just seems way off. It seems like it's a much older tomb than it than uh, in Jesus's time. And typically you'd say, well, an older tomb doesn't mean Jesus couldn't have used it, except for the fact that we're given very explicit um, indicators in the gospels that Jesus was laid in a new tomb that had never been used before. So it can't really be much older than Jesus in order to be a viable site. So for that reason, I think this place is kind of out. Now, what about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre? What does it have going for it? Even though I was going in pretty biased against it because I don't like things being based on Constantine's mother, Helena, having a vision somewhere, there are a few things going for it. Namely, um, the fact that this tradition dates way back before Helena to like the late uh, 190s to like 200s AD with Origen or Origen, depending on how you say his name. And I've found him to be a pretty respectable person. Now, I don't like put his writings up at the level of scripture by any means, but he did. Um, we owe him a lot of gratitude for affirming the canon of scripture that we have. So he's one of the earliest examples of having written out all the books of the Bible 
And so when we look back, we can see that even as, as early as about like 200 AD or so, he believed that we had the correct canon that we have today. So if we're going to trust him for that, why not trust him for the tradition that this is the spot? Now, it's still a significant time after Jesus was crucified. So there's room for error there. But that is a really early tradition that I, from a person that I've respected and trusted to a, to a certain degree. So that's one thing. The second thing is on this original site, there was a pagan temple that is after the time of Christ, but before Helena found it. And why does this make people think that it could be the correct site? Well, after Christianity, it was, it happened kind of a lot where uh, Rome would build pagan temples to places on important Christian sites to kind of desecrate them, to dissuade people from worshiping at certain places, to dissuade gatherings of Christians. And so the fact that there's a pagan temple here, when it really doesn't make a ton of sense for like... There's no other reason why there would be one here. Now, it could have just been open space and like that's where they wanted to put one. So it's not absolute proof, but it does fall in line with what Rome tried to do to certain Christian sites very early on. So that's a possibility. Um, The other thing, the, the thing that some people think goes against it, the fact that it lies outside or sorry, inside of the walls of Jerusalem is easily fixed when you realize that these walls that are currently surrounding Jerusalem are not the original walls. So yes, you have like the retaining walls of like the Temple Mount and everything, but as far as the city itself, um, these walls have been changed over time. And so originally this site, even though right now it sits inside of old Jerusalem, this site originally would have been outside the city walls. And it says that they took Jesus outside of the city to crucify him. So This is also um, in line with that as well. So you've got an early tradition. It's outside the walls. And you also have another piece of evidence. Uh, In in Judaism, all synagogues point towards Jerusalem. So wherever they are, they orient themselves where the front is always facing Jerusalem. And uh, this changed in Christianity And there's an indicator that potentially early Christian churches, um, even though there's no, there's not like a precedent for it as far as like, there's no biblical thing saying like, well, now face your churches towards something different. But there, there are some early Christian churches or places of worship that began to orient themselves facing the Church of the Holy Sepulchre location. So if you're a Christian in the late first century, early second century, and you're thinking, you're like, you know, you have this Jewish mindset um, because there were a lot of Jewish converts to Christianity. Um, You're going to want to orient, like you're thinking about the orientation of your church, that's in your mind, but facing it towards the temple isn't really an imperative anymore. So where would you face it towards if you're thinking, well, I should face it towards something, um, There's a possibility that they thought, well, we should face it towards the place where Jesus was crucified and then rose from the dead, as that's kind of the central uh, historical fact of our faith. So it's not to say that all churches should be faced towards that now, but it is an interesting anecdote that does provide some evidence. In addition, the idea of um, the place of the skull. So there's a few different ideas of what this could have meant. One, it could just mean place of the skull 
where there would have been a lot of skulls. It could have been a common place of execution. And so there are skulls or skulls just meaning, you know, being representative of death. And so it could just be meaning a place of execution. There's another idea that says that potentially place of the skull would mean um, where they already believed at this time that Adam was buried. And so there's this weird tradition dating back where like, um, Jesus's blood ran down from the cross, um, and then down into the, the earth itself and then covered Adam's bones. And like, this is representative of Jesus's blood covering mankind and covering the sin, um, that entered into the world. And so there, it's not like, I can't prove that biblically architectural or archeologically or historically at all, but it's a potential when you've got this tradition that Adam's bones were at this site at the church of the Holy Sepulchre. And that comes, I think before the time of Jesus crucifixion. So it could have been known as the place of the skull because there is the idea that there is this skull here. Um, others say that potentially Goliath's skull was also buried here. I'm not sure why they think that. Um, but basically, there's a lot of reasons as to why a certain place could be called the place of the skull without the physical landscape looking like a skull. So even though if, in fact, um, the garden tomb in today's standards, like that garden tomb is actually um, in the form of a skull in Jesus' time, it doesn't necessarily mean that that was what was being indicated when it says they took him to Golgotha or the place of the skull. So I don't think that's enough to substantiate the garden tomb. And I think the other things are, at the very least, um, some of the strongest evidence we have that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is on the correct site of the crucifixion and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Now, what does this do for me? Not a lot. Um, I saw both places. There's other people that propose other sites. I've only heard of actually one more, and that's on the Mount of Olives itself. Um, and so that's a possibility as well. I don't really lose sleep over it. I saw the site. I think that there's a strong potential that that is the correct site, but whether it is or isn't is not of any spiritual importance to me. Um, because I'm not going into a church and like rubbing my scarves all over it and weeping over the rocks there. So it's just a difference in mindset. Um, but I think it's interesting that I went in thinking, uh, one definitely is not it, and the other probably is, and then absolutely switch my mind uh, on the matter. It's it's not that, maybe it's neither of them. That's still a possibility. I'm not 100% that that's the spot, but I think the evidence that we have supports the idea that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is on a better proposed location than the Garden Tomb. So just wanted to go over that with you because I think it's interesting, and it kind of outlines the process of like, weighing evidence in light of where certain proposed historical sites are. And so that was my experience there. And that was really the rest of the day. We walked for a little bit back to the bus, um, back to a more open area past like the Damascus gate and got back on the bus and went back to the hotel. Uh, there was a parade going on. So we had kind of heavy traffic getting back um, because there was a parade for the Feast of Tabernacles. And we missed it. Like we didn't get to see it really. Some people that stayed back, I think did get to see some of it. Um, cause every once in a while there'd be people that were just like, no, I'm tired today. I think I'm just going to take it easy at the hotel. And so they didn't come with us. 
And so some of those people saw the parade and thought it was pretty cool. But by the time we got back, we were only in time to hit the traffic for it. Now, I did say I was going to go into the next day. I know that I've taken most of the or the whole hour here to go over day uh, 13. Day 14, though, I think will be wrapped up pretty quickly and we'll cover some of this the following day as we leave Israel and go into Jordan. But on day 14, um, I woke up. We were getting to sleep in because we weren't going to be touring this day. We're going to have church. It was the eighth day. Um, You can find that in Leviticus 23. So there's seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles and then a separate holy day called the eighth day um, that's also mentioned. So we keep that as well. And we were going to have church that day and just kind of take it a little bit easier. But I woke up pretty early in the morning to the sound of alarms outside of my hotel. And I thought it was like police cars or something. So I just like heard it and then went back to bed as soon as they stopped. A little bit later, um, I woke up to more sirens and I thought, I wonder if I should record this, like just look outside the window and record it um, just in case it is something, you know, Um, you never know. And so I figured I should do that, but I was so tired that I was like, well, if it's something worth recording, it'll probably happen again. And if it's not, and it's just police sirens, then I won't regret it. So I went back to bed again. Then I woke up before church and got ready, got dressed and walked outside the hotel and went down to where church normally was. And there was no one in there. And I was like, man, okay, I don't, I don't know where anybody is. And so I went back up to my room because I had like forgotten a Bible. I wanted to see if maybe my dad had gone back up there, got my Bible. And as I'm leaving my room, I see one of the coordinators of our trip and he's coming out of his room. He said, what are you doing? He said, we're not supposed to be out in the hallways. And I said, what, what are you talking about? And he said, just, we need to go down, um, churches at the lowest level. So originally we're on the main floor where we have church next to the lobby And he said, no, go down one more level than that, and we're going to meet in that area. And I said, okay. And so I I go down and and, uh, meet with everybody at church, and there's more sirens going on. And then it's kind of clicking in my mind. I'm like, okay, we're meeting in a different location. We're down in a basement area. There's alarms going off. Something must have happened. And everybody's kind of talking in hushed tones. And so I look it up. Um, and the internet was kind of slow. So I'm like, man, this might actually be pretty serious. And finally the website came up and I saw the news that Hamas had attacked Israel at that point. I don't think they knew exactly who it was. They suspected it was Hamas. Um, but it was still pretty early on, but I, uh, it's, it's pretty anticlimactic. I know other people that had gotten up early and walked over to the old city. And so they were like right there and could, like see boom, hear booms and like see things in the sky. And so I didn't see any of that. I didn't really hear anything crazy. I just heard alarms and sirens and then slept through it. So it's kind of anticlimactic, but, uh, it lets you know, like as exciting as it was in some ways, as maybe on the edge of your seat, you might've been in other ways as nerve wracking as it might've been for people back home. As far as being there, there wasn't like a huge panic necessarily. It was a big deal. I don't want to um, mitigate that it was a big deal, but it wasn't such a big deal that everybody was losing their minds. Like our guides were calling home and making sure their families were safe. We were all watching the news pretty attentively, um, but we still like had services and 
the really the biggest thing, um, because in my mind, I'm thinking, well, things like this happen in Israel all the time. I didn't really understand the magnitude of it at the time. Um, it's just, you hear the guides talking and you're like, oh yeah, if we were over here like five years ago, we probably couldn't be here because there was an up uprising or we couldn't be over there because they had, uh, exploded missiles in this area. And they just say it no, so nonchalantly that like you kind of, you kind of don't understand it because as we're going through Israel, everything was peaceful. Everybody was friendly. Um, all these things were downplayed because it's just part of their life. And so to be here while there was some sort of conflict happening made me feel very much a part of the people here. I was like, okay, now I understand what it can be like. And the hotel was like taking in people off the streets, um, whenever there were sirens. And that was kind of common practice. It's like, okay, well, just in case a missile like goes off to a place it shouldn't like come inside. And so the hotel was pretty busy with people just off the streets trying to take shelter. Um, but we still had church, you know, like we had church and made it through services and even a Bible study after. And we were, it was nerve wracking, but everybody did such a fantastic job. There was a perfect combination of the coordinators of the trip itself and our guides and the hotel staff of just not being panicked, but definitely being concerned about things happening that I think set the tone for everybody else. And so I really appreciated that. Um, as the night went on, uh, we had dinner and I, I finally realized like, oh man, tomorrow we leave, hopefully. And that's the thing I was most nervous about. Like I wasn't nervous that this wouldn't end at some point. It never crossed my mind like we might not get out of the country. It never crossed my mind like we might be in danger. It more just kept crossing my mind that we might not get out of Israel into Jordan if there's tension between the Jewish people and the Muslim people, because Jordan is primarily Muslim. They don't really have a great relationship with the Jewish people of Israel. And so that was my main concern. And it seems foolish now or kind of dumb in hindsight because there was bigger things going on than I even really knew about. Um, but admittedly, while it was happening, I just thought it was more fascinating than terrifying because this is something that Israel goes through fairly regularly. Like they're the center of a lot of negative attention um, through, I think, no fault of their own. Now, I'm not saying that the Jewish government or the Israeli government doesn't have their faults or they're a perfect government or anything, nothing like that. Um, but I do think that they get a lot of negative attention for just kind of being Jewish, uh, for lack of any other description. I really think that's why. And they're just at this crossroads of people where it's like they're, they're surrounded by enemies. And it really reminds me of Israel's circumstance in the Old Testament. You know, they were told to go into Israel, drive out the Canaanites, leave none, and they didn't. And ever since that time, they have just been surrounded and plagued by their enemies. And it was very, it was very sobering, but very fascinating to see that that happen in a modern time. And I think that it gave context for a lot of the Bible and a lot of the modern problems we see there today. Um, we've talked a lot about the ancient and archaic and the mix of that with the updated and the new and the modern and how well it works despite being all on top of each other. And I think this was a prime example of that. Looking back to Israel, seeing that this is still the fight of Jacob and Esau, 
years and years and years later, seeing that this is the principle of Israel to go into a nation and not claim sovereignty over a space, but try and work with those people, despite those people being directly the antithesis of their faith and beliefs and somehow hoping that would work. And it just doesn't. And so I just think seeing that um, on this kind of scale was really a fascinating thing. Um, It was a prime example of the modern and the ancient coming together, not in an archaeological way or historical way necessarily, but in a modern way reflecting the historical. So that was fascinating. And I I really don't care to talk a whole lot about um, my political views or my thoughts on the whole thing. I will tell you that I think what Hamas did was an absolute atrocity. And if you think anything other than that, I really just don't even want you listening to me. So Hate me for that all you want, but it was despicable. And there was just no call for it at all. And I, I firmly stand with Israel. Um, but I, I don't I don't care to get into it more than that. If you'd like to talk to me about it, you can email me. Or if you know me, you can text me and that's fine. Um, I don't really want to just be a like sitting here in my own echo chamber and just kind of spitting what I think at you. Um, because it is a sensitive subject for a lot of people, but... If there's anything in you that doesn't just look at what happened on this day and think that is a horrible thing that happened, then I, I can't really talk to you about it anyway. So, but that is that is what happened that day, and I felt bad. Uh, that night was the last night we would see our guides, and so um, it was very sobering to see them in the corner. You know, we had a celebration for them, like a dinner, and they came and we gave them a tip and thanked them so much and applauded for them and showed them how much we appreciated them as best we could. And uh, the drivers as well. I mean, I got really close to at least one of them, Atef. He was such a good guy. Um, But this was the last time we'd see them. So I walked around and said goodbye to them and asked how their families were. And it was, it was very sobering to see them like off in the corner calling home and just being like, okay, well, what are we going to do here? Some of them had sons that were in the IDF and they were being called up. One of them was be, was considering um, rejoining the IDF if they needed volunteers and help. So it was a really hard way to leave people that had given you so much in this trip with their time and their knowledge and their experience. Um, so to leave them at this time was horrible. So in whatever way we could, we tried to show them um, how much we cared for them and supported them and appreciated them. And so for that reason, I just, I can't be silent on it because I I think it's a disservice to those people who became my friends, um, people that I know now and just am, am truly grateful for that I think are just good people, you know, to the core. They don't share my faith. They don't share my culture. Um, but we do in some ways share a history and at least an experience of having been through that day together. So, um, yeah, I think it's a disservice to them to be absolutely silent on it, but I just, I don't need to get into it more than I already have. So that was a a sad time to be leaving them. Um, we were still very concerned wondering the next day if Jordan would be open or if the border would be closed. That was a huge concern of mine. And so we waited to hear, I mean, we packed up as if we were going, but at this point in time, we were not a hundred percent sure. Um, I was less concerned. Some people were like, well, can we even get out of Israel at all to go back home? Or are we stuck here? And I was like, well, I don't really care about that. I just want to know if I can finish, you know, my tour. Like I want to go to Jordan. I want to see the sights. I want to do the things I'm not done. I'm not ready to go home yet. So I, 
definitely, I think it's an understatement to say I fell in love with this place to the point where at war, out of war, I had no trouble being there. And um, I had just had such a love for it that I, I was not ready to go home yet. Even though we were going to be leaving Israel and going to Jordan, um, I just, I, I still very much, like my heart was here in this place. So I wanted to go to Jordan, wanted to see the sights there. Um, I really, like my heart felt like I wanted to stay in Israel and um, I, there's nothing I could do there, obviously. But absolutely, I didn't want to go home. So I was nervous about that. Uh, but we'll cover that uh, on the next episode when we do, in fact, travel into Jordan. And we'll talk about um, that journey. And there's a whole bunch of stories to go with that. So that'll be an exciting episode. And we're nearing the end. Very, very soon we'll be done. So thank you guys very much for listening. I know this was a bit longer of an episode, but um, there's a lot to cover. And it all felt kind of connected, like one thing just led into the next. So um, thank you for, for your patience and hope you've enjoyed listening up to this point. And I'll catch you guys next time. Thank you.